0: Welcome to the NM Cool podcast. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte Domandi. NM Cool is the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands, and its fifth annual summit is happening in the spring of 2022. This is a time of uncertainty and profound change when so many of us are fatigued from multiple stresses, and so it's more important than ever to focus on effective collaboration and good working relationships. This series of six podcasts addresses some big topics facing people who are working with the land, and we hope it helps you stay on course and resilient. I'd like to welcome Eugene Pickett. He's a retired farmer and an advocate with the National Rural Coalition, the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Trade Association, and New Mexico Black Farmers and Ranchers. I talked to him over Zoom from his place in Belen, New Mexico, on a very windy day, as you may hear during this recording. Belen was badly flooded several years back, and I asked him to describe what happened.
1: This is a very interesting experience, because I retired in 2017, and I had a whole plan laid out, but then we got flooded out in our valley. You know, so, I mean, we had five feet of water outside, three and a half feet of water inside everybody's house. The first year, we really had to focus on salvaging the physical structures, the property, because you know it's costly if you gotta tear it down and rebuild. So we were able to salvage the house, that's the year. Then the next year, we had a shortage of seeds, shortage of water. We weren't extreme drought yet, but that hit. And then the next year, you know, uh, the, well, the next two years now, we've been in extreme drought. So just the overall push for advocacy of small farmers and ranchers, because when you're um, devastated, you kind of have a different thought about accessing resources because we all, as small farmers and ranchers, you kind of want to be on your own because you could do it the way that you want to do it. And that's okay. But then when it comes to affordability, you know, if you've gone through disaster and say, because our community down here in uh, public is so small, there's only probably about 700 families in the area, you know, so what's called the per capita, uh, designation of an emergency declaration we didn't meet that cap so that means like you are on your own <laughs> not only you're on your own you start developing you know a whole nother consciousness about how you're going to do whatever you know red cross bring comes out and brings truckloads of water so people gather at the wherever that's going to be to get some water you know because drinking water And a flood is non-existent. So going from that and really learning where resources are available, you know, especially um, with the United States Department of Agriculture. So if you're in farming or you're in ranching, here are your access points. Now, you don't learn these things, you know what I mean? But when you get in a disaster, then you start looking. I had to find out all these things. I wish I had known them prior to because I would have been v- better positioned to not only recover myself, but help my neighbors recover.
0: Were you able to access government funding?
1: Not really, but we were able to influence the process so that people became aware of the existence. You know, so once you are aware of the existence, you know, anything that you do helps other people.
0: How did you start farming and ranching? You're not from New Mexico originally, you're from Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, I was born in East LA. Well, see what people don't know about East LA, right? Especially where I came from, which is a place called Boyle Heights. That's a real interesting community. And a lot of times people who are not from LA don't know that LA is nothing but, at least when I grew up, nothing but a a whole lot of country people who either came from Central America, Mexico, Japan, Korea, the South, the Southern states. You know, I mean, so these people are country people, farmers and ranchers and fishers. But nobody talks about that. And then there was a heavy Jewish population. And there was an area called Fairfax. okay, just below Beverly Hills. All right. Well, the Jewish people from East L.A. migrated up to that area which became very exclusive later so the the intermixing of cultures that were very agrarian you know everybody had gardens everybody you know they had bakeries you know all the, the the like my uncles they were more hunters so they used to go hunting and bring back venison so they traded that and then the japanese you know they were more into the uh the markets, equaling like like they controlled the areas downtown where the distribution of vegetables and fish, that's what they did. So, you know, this bartering system that, that took place because that's a country lifestyle, you know. <laughs> they would just naturally do this kind of stuff, you know. So we see this as kids and everybody got gardens, you know. So you kind of get the flavor. And then when I became an adult, and raising my own family, you know, like, and in college, everybody had gardens. Everybody had gardens, you know, I mean, at their house or, you know, just gardens. And so you move from that base to an adult. And then uh, my, my my father had some friends that had a very large plot in the foothills of the Los Angeles Crest National Forest. This guy had this ranch up there. He had a, one that was 26 acres and then up on top where he lived was 24 so my dad and his friends, you know, they were, oh, hey, you know, we got this ranch. You should move back out here. It would be perfect for your family, you know. So we uh, launched the program. And because it was a ranch, you know, I didn't look at it initially as a business. I looked at it as a living environment. But, you know, when you have that kind of property, you start, oh, what do I need to have? Yeah, well, you know, we in the horses. We got to get horses. You eat eggs, but you got to have chickens, you know, it just kind of like started to grow, you know. And so as a result of managing a site like that, it became a a real community based enterprise, you know, to just make it balance. You know, I mean, you know, been balancing equals financially balance, you know, that environment. And then we had uh, youth programs down in town at a park. So, I mean, it kind of just, you know, like one thing led to the next. And that was, um, that started like in the 80s. And then as a result, I ended up coming out to New Mexico, moved my family out here to New Mexico. And, you know, we've always just, we had branches and lost ranches and then got ranches back. And so once I got introduced to the farming and ranching community here, you know, kind of my administrative side, they were like, well, can you help us do this? Can you help help us do that? Then once I got a better understanding of what USDA is and what it offers, you know, I mean, to rural communities, it's like, you know, housing, because that impacts farm workers, you know, and then they have senior programs, they have the farming side, which is your vegetables and your fruits, and then they have the meat side, you know, which is the ranching side is just this tremendous, you know, like, whoa, okay, super big tool that had I known what I know now, then I would have done uh, a number of things very differently. So going into that position of being an advocate for that particular lifestyle that I had lived and have enjoyed is like, how can I help other farmers and ranchers, especially small farmers and ranchers? move forward in terms of accessing resources because it becomes very technical. You know, of how and what and what organizations are doing this and that, you know, because it's uh, we've been kept out. I mean, you know, because there are what we grow to know as um, historically discriminated against people, the preferred group to access USDA services and programs from its inception was white male landowners. So anybody that was not in those categories, you are on the outside. Doing what I have to do for myself as well as advocating, you know, for others, then you kind of grow. And so the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Trade Association, I was introduced to them from a, a close friend of mine, Jaime Chavez, and, you know, I've just grown in that relationship.
0: You just mentioned that you know you would have done things differently if you'd known then what you know now Mm -hmm. what what would you have done differently
1: well this is what i tell farmers and ranchers you know because your assets and your resources which can you know i mean can be your equipment it can be your your personal savings or your income that you generate you know that if you access available resources. From the United States Department of Agriculture, then you can keep your assets as assets that you don't use unless you need to. Many uh, small farmers and ranchers look at it like this: that you want to make it on your own. You know, what I mean, you know, you you know, we're one hundred percent. We're more American than apple pie. You know, I mean, so you want to stand on your own. You want to be these strong individuals that made it in spite of everything, well, that's fine. But if you can use the available resources and you know that, that are there, then your assets are secured and you use them as you need them to leverage with whatever the opportunities or resources that are presented.
0: Are the resources you're talking about primarily from the USDA? Or all kinds of different sources, like what, like for, and for what specific types of projects are you talking about?
1: I think it's like multiple projects, you know. And there are some very famous suits, you know, the, that that have taken place. And as a result of those suits, doors have opened. And so, when when I say those doors have opened, you know, government as well as big business has become very open to interactions, so which that is involved for me and uh, the group that I'm, I'm working closely with now, the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Trade Association. I'm now their uh, deputy director. So that's put us in position to uh, have a real defined relationship with USDA. Well, we have uh, two agreements with USDA, one that's on the Natural Resource Conservation Services, better known as NRCS, with their uh, director of national outreach, his office approached my boss, Rudy Ardondo. Hey, Rudy, man, we need to make things better. Rudy said, yeah, we do need to make things better. Let's hammer an agreement out where you're going to do some stuff for us. And so we've been in the process of creating a model in New Mexico that is conservation based. And it's dealing with, you know, like water and conservation practices and all that, right? Education. Another relationship that he had with uh, lead legal counsel, Denny Hip for Secretary of Agriculture, Vilsack, his lead lead counsel. Hey, Rudy, you know, we got all these problems over here and you've been talking about them. Maybe we could put something together you know, and have an agreement to uh, make things better. You think you could do that, Rudy? Yeah, we could do that. So as a result, the specifics of key departments in USDA, where there were barriers that, you know, like small farmers and ranchers and historically discriminated against people encountered over the history of the organization, they were like, hey, Rudy, your purview would be is to help us remove these barriers. Everybody really was like, oh, yeah, that's what we do anyway. We could do that, especially if you're going to put some resources behind it. We're right at the moments where that's going to uh, be implemented.
0: Can you talk about some of those barriers, what it looked like, and then what, kind, what the agreements are so that those things get really, what would you say, dissolved?
1: let's say addressed, because I don't know, you know, I mean, it's so deep-seated, you know, it's systemic. It may never get dissolved, but once it's exposed, and once we can assist people to navigate through those barriers, and that we put, that we're in position to go like, hey, you know what, no, that ain't working right. I'm 71 years old, so I'm moving into being an elder, but some of my elders, you know, that have, actually had their applications thrown in the trash Uh, you know i got a grant from usda to redo my kitchen right because they had certain senior grants well the lady that was the reviewer you know she was like "Ah, you there's not enough money you know you you shouldn't be interested well wait a minute you know how do you know what i should be interested in and you know i mean that first point of contact so anyway we you know i said well let me take you down to my neighbor because you know he had an adobe house. And so when the flood came, we had water sitting out here for at least 17, 18 days. So the house began to crumble. So I take her down there. And, you know, first thing she says to this guy is like, well, you know, to to be eligible for this grant, you got to be at least 65 years old. And he looks at her and he's like, I'm 90 years old and my wife is 87. Do you think we might qualify? And she gets this look on her face like, you know, small details like that. Point of first point of contact, you know, the discouragement. And then you have uh, what's called the Southern Cooperatives. You know, that's a lot of the black farmers that are in uh, the Southern states where they were not allowed to even process applications early on. Or you had like uh, the sharecroppers, you know, when the uh, when the Voting Rights Act first were um, initiated, were Freedom Summer, where all the students were going down and helping on the uh, voter registration education drives in the South. Well, those were primarily agricultural workers, not the students who came, but the people who lived there. You know, so I mean, this whole uh, movement of the white South against black farmers and ranchers to keep them in their place. You know, I mean, you know, to not have the vote. Well, I mean, then you begin to have access to whatever the resources are that you will need for uh, subsidies on planting, purchasing equipment. So, you know, this move to keep us even to this day out of the access lane, you know, they had a, um, Big thing that came up where there was um, there was going to be what was called debt relief. That debt relief was going to be provided to farmers and ranchers who had been historically discriminated against, and they knew this. This was the acknowledgement of it. Well, hey, what we can do is relieve all the debt that you have related to you know like USDA loans, whatever category it was in, and so you had a group of white farmers who came and. Put an injunction in place, took this to court, you know, no, no, you you know, don't give them any, what they need any money for, they don't need any money. Well, that would have given, especially during the pandemic, you know, uh, where people uh, put out of work, couldn't pay their loans. If you don't pay your loan, then, you know, like you will lose your property, you lose your business. You know, those acts that became very upfront, they're like, you know what, whatever it is that may be any form of uh, of assistance or relief that you would have through USDA programs, we need to cut that off, you know, so you begin to put people out of business, you know, so why do you put people out of business so that you get the business that's, that, that they're going to lose, you know, I mean, these are simple formulas that are like straight up front, you know, so many of the properties that have come in, in jeopardy, that are in jeopardy as a result of the pandemic, you know, there there has been no relief. So as those properties are becoming available because of the loss of the properties, Bill Gates has become, he's he's becoming the number one owner of agricultural property in America because he's taking his capital and purchasing these these at-risk properties.
0: What does that mean to agriculture?
1: Oh, it's devastating what it means to agriculture because there's a potential paradigm shift. So that potential paradigm shift back into big ag means that like for small farmers and ranchers, there's a great possibility of returning to the sharecropper tradition because they don't want to work. They want to own the property, you know, and they're going back and saying to the, the owners, they're like, hey, you know what? Why don't you work the property? And, you would just, you, and then we'll figure out a, a, a good financial arrangement to keep you there on your property. They don't own it anymore. So whatever the practices are that are a preference of big ag, then you return to what those practices are and see what those practices have done over the years has taken so many nutrients out of the soil that the soil is no longer as productive as it ought to be because the traditional practices are being put to the side so that, you know, the alternatives that, like, you know, if you want healthy grown food, well, you know, certain fertilizers you just don't use. Certain seeds you just don't use. Well, if big ag owns the means of production, then you're going to produce the way they tell you to produce. So there's this big... I think a big challenge, not just in the United States, but you know around the world, you know, to have the alternative that is represented by the uh, small farmers and ranchers. You know, what I mean, because those are typically farmers and ranchers that are practicing, you know, just the family traditions that have they've always grown like this, they've always existed like this. So you know, so and in, in the small farmers, like the small farmers markets that we have here in new mexico it's like you know it's locally grown locally owned you know who it is you know your customers you know your farmers and ranchers so you feel i think a different sense of where your food is coming from you know so it's it's that difference and if that difference goes away big agriculture i mean the primary interest is the profit mode you know so if the profit mode is the only modus operandi then what begins to happen is you're doing all that you do based upon the science of how production is going to be more profitable to you. Not healthy, but profitable. You know, so that means there's that heavy, um, heavy contradiction to just stabilize that so that at least people have a choice. But if you run the small farmers and ranchers out of business, then you don't have a choice any longer.
0: So you've been talking about your advocacy and how small farmers and ranchers can access the system of resources that might be available. If anybody has questions who's listening right now and wants to find out more, what can they do?
1: Well, then they all got to do is Uh, get the information from you, but they can, you know, call 505-864-3685. That's my um, landline, or they can call 505-307-4429. That's my cell. They can also call the uh, New Mexico Agricultural Policy Council. Just pull that up and they'll connect you with us. And, you know, I mean, so we've, you know, become, you know, the advocacy points, because there are people who are in position to do things, but if they don't know and they don't hear it, then, you know, and then you've got uh, Senator Ben Ray Lujan's office, you know, I mean, they know how to contact us. So it's like, once you get in contact with people who will do what it is that they say, then it's kind of, you know, it's not like calling 911, but then if you need those, those advocates that will access the system at multiple levels you know to get whatever the scenario the situation is addressed you just got to know who what where and when so because we're moving like that in new mexico now then you know we're in there like that
0: when you say we are you referring to new mexico black farmers and ranchers
1: i would say yeah new mexico farmers black farmers and ranchers i'll say the New Mexico Agriculture, Food and Agricultural Policy Council, I would say the uh, National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Trade Association, push those buttons. you know. And then we're going to point you in the, Senator Ben Ray Lujan's office. Push those buttons. The network of us who will move something and do something, that's what needs to happen.
0: You have been connected with the New Mexico Acequia Association. Mm. tell us about what you're doing with them what what that work is all about.
1: Ooh, that's very interesting because it's like when you're talking about the acequias that's very heavy you know because that goes back to the original irrigation systems in New Mexico and people from all over the world, whether, whether you know it or not, have come here to study, you know, the waterways, which comes back to the Asekias. They are the original, that's what they've been ever since, and they're still in place. You know, some of them, they will upgrade and do some of the concrete work, but they discourage that. So it's very traditional. They go out and they're blessed seasonally and prayed over and, you know, just the whole tradition. So the Asekias, when I first got out of here, some of the the Atrisco Land Rights Council, better known as the Concilio, they're not as active as, as they used to be, were really invested in deep in their community in Atrisco, you know, to, to maintain the traditions. So those traditions that have continued to move forward, you know, and you got the Paula Garcias of the world and, you know, her contingencies, And then you had, you know, like I think it's Leta Pueblo, you know, played a huge role part in you know healthy and clean water. when uh, the labs were dumping into uh, the river you know that feeds into a lot of the acequias, you know the chemicals in the water that were causing uh, a lot of health conditions at the pueblo. So they established you know some water purification standards you know that have impacted all the upstream users above the pueblo especially the labs that were dumping into the river. So, you know, which impacts the water flow in, in terms of the downstream users, you know, so that secure flows become extremely important. So the, uh, on my part, you know, the engagement or the interaction, you know, because we normally would go out, my family to the, uh, praying over the, uh, the when, the, you know, when they open up for the uh, planting seasons, and so those relationships, you know, that, you know, started, you know, early on and have continued on brought us to a point where we are now. You know, these relationships, you know, the importance of interaction over the water. And I, me personally, I respect the elders. Okay. But I'm very conscious. they like, hey, you know what? Many of the things that we need to do in the now, we have to come together, you know, and do them in the now, you know, that relate to. Um, seed sovereignty, respecting, you know, the traditions, and then, you know, how we begin to put that together to move that forward because advocacy has to take place on every level. Big Ag is out there trying to bring our traditions to an end. You know, and so, you know, the Esekia associations because the farmers that are centered around the usage of the Esekia, they have a specific belief on how things are supposed to work, and those things have been working in in relationship to, you know, the, the Pueblos from forever. So we have to stand, I think, together. But at the same time, you know, new things that we're being made aware of, then that sharing of information, we have to employ, you know, like in a very aggressive and, I think, steadfast way, of standing together you know to protect a way of life that does exist still here in new mexico
0: talk a little bit more about seed sovereignty
1: oh. <laughs> let me see you know that's a you know we're, okay you hit the water that's the acequias and that understanding of their usage now seed sovereignty is really 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 i mean it's very key because if you don't have the seeds to plant then, you know, I mean, we're not going to have the food. So there's a movement, you know, around the globe of saving the seeds, you know, and the sovereign use of the seeds, you know, because you had like seeds that were imported during slavery that slaves knew that they had to bring their seeds with them or they may not eat, <laughs> you know. What I mean, so we got we got to braided the seeds into their hair and, you know, hid them, you know, to, you know, to where where they take this, oh my God, you know, so, you know, and so then, you know, the, their connection to the indigenous world to save people, you know, to survive. So now we tie that to the seeds. And as you move the seeds forward, some of the genetically modified seeds don't produce seeds and fruit. Because, you know, we'll go back to the profit mode. So if there's no production that relates to the seeds, so we're now modifying fruits and vegetables so that they don't produce seeds any longer. And that drives agricultural back to a dependence position. But unless you buy from me, you are not going to eat. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, what does it do? So we had like a, a number of things that came up in New Mexico that were seriously interesting, to where New Mexico State was getting ready to partner with Monsanto to uh, set up a committee that would review, you know, what seeds would be authorized to be planted in New Mexico. And so, you know, there were farmers and ranchers in certain collectives that, that, that became aware of that. So they alerted everybody else, you know, they alerted the Pueblos, They alerted the small farmers and ranchers. And so there's this meeting, a hearing in Santa Fe during one of the legislative processes, right? Had the meeting at 7.30 in the morning. And that meeting, everyone who was interested in agriculture from a small farmers, ranchers standpoint attended that meeting. There were probably only 250 seats in the building. All the seats were gone. People were in the hallways and everybody was positioned to speak. The only people who spoke for whatever this committee was of three or four people that were out of New Mexico State, Monsanto representatives and the sponsor of the bill. But there was no one who spoke in support. You know, I mean, so, you know, so, you know, that sends a message to us. They're like, whoa, how are they going to control the seeds? I mean, that are historically and you know, family heirlooms that have been passed down, you know, for generations. Wait a minute, you going to regulate the seas? You know, well, that's Monsanto over there. So this whole notion that moves forward, that's very critical. Not only in New Mexico, what are we going to do with our seas? But there's an organization called Slow Food International, right? And they were talking about, it was prior to the pandemic because they were gonna have a, a million person march on DC about saving seeds, right? So there's this whole movement that's an international movement where seed banks, seed libraries, you know, are being like attacked in war zones. So they're not just blowing up the hospitals, and the schools and you know like attacking civilians they're decimating seed libraries you know what i'm saying so they're like it drives agriculture back to these conglomerates that are attempting to control the seeds that they're actually suing uh people for um, infringement because they, they take the, our seeds study our seeds the genetics of our seeds and put patents on them. well if you are going against their protocols and going against their protocols, equal that, like you are taking uh, seeds and planting them, they're gonna take you to court. So, I mean, you know, this whole movement of uh, personalized agriculture is very dangerous. You know, what I mean, very dangerous. So, you know, like this position and notion of um, seed sovereignty becomes very important something that we got to make a very uh, concerted and conscious effort to deal with it in the now, because if we don't, then it just, you know, kind of gets misunderstood, you know, and it doesn't exist and we need to make it a part of our priorities and agendas.
0: That moment you were talking about with the 250 people and everybody except the committee spoke against it, did you win?
1: Uh, Yeah, but what happened was the House Agricultural Committee threw it out, (laughs) you know, and then uh, they tried to sneak it in to the, uh, on the governor's uh, desk. And um, I think Paula Garcia and uh, Pam Roy caught it and were like, what is this doing up here? You know, that got squashed in committee. (laughs) That shouldn't be up here. So, I mean, you have to be very diligent. You would think at this day and age that it's not like that but it is like that because it's, it's big business
0: yeah is there anything else you want to tell people or let people know about before we go
1: that our food and our water and our you know soil health is extremely important the more people can become aware and become conscious and um, listen to your podcasts and just the planet you know we are it's in we're, we're in crisis and, and when you wonder, well, how bad is it? Well, the data is going to tell you how bad it is. Those of us in the population that don't have access to health care or limited access to health care died more than any other group, you know, uh, during the pandemic. Clean water is not accessible to everyone. Flint, Michigan does exist. And then we have um, the soil is just being decimated and destroyed. You know I mean? It's, so it's, You know, to be uh, ever diligent, you know, just be very conscious. If you're asleep, wake up, eat right, eat good food. You know, if something doesn't feel, you know, like right, then leave it alone. You know, and just let's be serious about, you know, loving this life that, you know, we have been blessed to live and, you know, just be as happy as we possibly can.
0: Eugene Pickett, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Okay, well, thank you.
0: You've been listening to the NM Cool podcast. If you want to learn more about the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands, visit nmcool.org, that's N-M-C-E-W-L.org, where you can listen to other episodes of this podcast and learn more about our members, work, and ways you can get involved.